The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning and welcome again to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad to have you with us this morning, especially if you're visiting with us. Welcome. Now, we are continuing our study in the book of Deuteronomy this morning, and we are picking up at the tail end of a passage where Moses is giving instructions about what the people are to do as they go into this promised land. And Moses tells them in the passage we looked at last week, they're to take the land from these evil nations that are currently inhabiting them. They're supposed to break down their altars. They're supposed to destroy their false idols. And Moses tells them, tells them to take care, be very careful as you go in, that you are not seduced by their idolatry. Do not begin to worship the gods of the peoples around you. And the reason he gives them is in verse six, we didn't read it this morning, but he says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, So Moses tells the people, God has chosen you for himself. He set you apart as his treasured possession, which raises an interesting question. Why did God choose Israel from among all of the nations? Why them? And it's a question that you and I have to wrestle with as well when it comes to our salvation. We believe that salvation is this gracious gift of God, that he initiates it, he accomplishes it, that he applies it to us. We haven't done anything to deserve it. And it raises the question, why us? Why would God save sinners like us? In our passage this morning, we start to get some answers to those questions. We'll see in verses seven and eight, the rationale behind God's choice, the character behind God's choice in verses nine and 10, and then the right response to God's choice in verse 11. So that's our roadmap this morning, how we'll try and navigate this passage together. Before we set out, let me pause and pray, and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to bless our time in his word together. Let's pray.
Lord Moses told these same people that your word is no vain word, no empty word. It is our very life. We know that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We know that it's a lamp for our feet and a light to our path. And we want to walk with you this morning, Lord. So would you show us the way in your word? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. My wife, Mary, had a mentor uh, and friend in high school that she babysat for. It was, she was the wife, actually, of Mary's youth pastor. And Mary, as she babysat for them, often got to be there as various family squabbles and marriage squabbles would happen. And she said that uh, the husband often, when they were having, when the husband and the wife were having a little bit of a tiff, the husband would often try to diffuse the situation by jokingly putting his arm around his wife and saying, honey, you know, I love you. Think about it. I chose you out of all the women in the world. And he would do that to rile her up because he knew his wife would say, you didn't have an option of all the women in the world. That was not available to you. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses reminds Israel that God has chosen them out of all the nations in the world. And the difference is that God really did have the choice. He could have picked anyone. And Moses knows that Israel is going to be tempted to let God's gracious choice become a point of pride, a point of arrogance. They are going to be tempted to believe that there was something special in them something lovely, something worthy in them that merited God's favor. And Moses is quick to remind them, absolutely not. And then he begins to explain why God did choose them and what the consequences of that choice are. So let's look first of all at the rationale behind this choice. Why did God choose Israel? Look back at verse seven with me. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. So as Moses starts explaining the rationale, he starts with what it cannot be, namely anything in Israel. There was nothing that they did to deserve this. They were not numerous, nothing great about them. In fact, Moses says, you were the least of all the peoples. If we were gonna go by numbers, you would have been last in line. I would have picked everybody else before you. And so it raises the question, okay, so not because they were great, what was it? And Moses gives them the reason in verse eight, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. If you notice there, Moses actually doesn't answer the question. He says, why does God love you? And he answers, because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. He chooses you because he chooses you. The rationale behind God's choice is not something in Israel, but something in him, something in God. Namely, his love and his faithfulness to the promises that he had made to their fathers. Moses tells the people, God loves you because he loves you. 
because he wants to. In the mystery of his sovereignty, he has decided to set his affection on you. And the same is true for us. Those who are in Christ, those of us who are born again, why has God chosen to save us? Because he loves us. He loves us because he loves us. Now, I I just said something there that may have been controversial to some of us. I said, God has chosen to save us. And so you may have noticed as we look at this passage and how we're gonna talk about it this morning, that we are talking about that dreaded doctrine of election. It's clear in our passage that God chooses Israel not because of anything that they have done, but because of his loving faithfulness. And perhaps you're sitting there this morning and thinking, well, that's fine, but this is the Old Testament. This is Israel, right? That may have been how it worked then, but surely not after Jesus, right? That's not what we believe. And certainly, to be fair, the people of God are redefined in the New Testament. It's no longer just Israel. Jews and Gentiles alike are now a part of the people of God. But the New Testament echoes this very same sentiment when it talks about how God saves us. So Jesus himself will tell his disciples in John 15, verse 16, you have not chosen me, I chose you. And in the book of Acts, Luke describes a scene where the apostle Paul is preaching. And at the end of his preaching, this is what Luke writes in Acts 13, 48, Paul finishes his sermon. And as many as were ordained unto eternal life, believed. Did you catch that order? as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. The Apostle Paul will go on to say the same thing in Ephesians 1. He'll say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So the testimony of both Old and New Testaments is the same. God chooses those who are his. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, it is because God worked in you first, calling you to himself, renewing your will, enlightening your mind, offering Jesus to you in the gospel. Now, some people hear that and they think, see, this is why I can't be Presbyterian. You guys are too elitist. You think you're the chosen ones, that you're special. But actually, if you pay attention to Deuteronomy 7 here, this whole doctrine undermines our arrogance. It actually completely humiliates us. Because to be elitist about it, we would have to think that we were chosen for some special reason or because there was something special in us. But the passage is clear. God doesn't choose Israel because there's something special in them. They were the least of all people. And the same is true for us. And in Ephesians 2, where Paul's talking about all this, Ephesians 1 and 2, he says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins nothing good in us that God should choose us. What Moses tells the people is they are a treasure because God chose them. He did not choose them because they are a treasure. 
Let me say that again. They are a treasure because God chose them. He did not choose them because they are a treasure. That order makes all the difference. God's favor to us is completely unmerited. And when that clicks, I think it's radically humbling and also encouraging. Because if you've ever tried to get it together to obey God's law, you have run into the brick wall of your own incompetence. Me too. It is too hard to make ourselves worthy. And the glorious good news of the gospel is that we do not have to merit it. God grants us his unmerited favor in Jesus. Tim Keller, a pastor in our denomination, tells a story about a time that he was in a class where the teacher, early on in Keller's academic career, this teacher is teaching on this doctrine of election. This idea that if you believe in Jesus, it's because you've been chosen by grace. And there was this young woman in there who, who was really struggling with this. And finally, she just raised her hand, told the teacher, look, I can't accept this. The idea that I believed because God chose me is completely unfair. Why doesn't he choose everybody? I don't understand it. I don't like it. I will not accept it. And the teacher responded to her, I, I totally agree. There are intellectual challenges here. Why doesn't he choose everybody? That's a good question. The thing is, there are even bigger problems if you deny it. And she said, what do you mean? And the teacher said, okay, I want you to imagine that you have a roommate who is not a Christian. And she said, actually, I do. I do have a roommate who's not a Christian. He said, okay, great. For our purposes, let's think this through. Why are you a Christian and your roommate is not? And she said, well, because I accepted Christ. My roommate didn't. And he said, right, but why did you accept Christ and your roommate didn't? And she said, well, because I repented of my sins and my roommate wouldn't. And he said, that's right. But why did you repent and your roommate wouldn't? And she's starting to get exasperated at this point. She says, well, I guess I was willing and to admit that I was a sinner and she didn't want to. He said, that's right. But why were you willing to admit that you were a sinner and she was not? And hopefully you can see where he's going here. Because the reality is, if salvation is a gracious gift of God that we do nothing to earn, and that is what we believe the scriptures teach. Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it this way, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's how it works. Grace, saved through faith. And then Paul goes on. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So we do believe you. If you want to be saved, you have to have faith. And people begin to latch on and go, yes, ha-ha, see, that's the part that you have to do. And Paul goes, nope. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And so if that's true... The only difference between this young woman and her roommate is God's grace. Only difference is the Holy Spirit has opened her heart and not her roommates, at least not yet. And if that's the only difference, she has no room to look down on her roommate. She can't feel superior to her in any way because her own salvation was God's gracious gift. But if salvation is something we choose, then there's a difference. Maybe we were a little better. 
little wiser, a little humbler. Now we can start to look down on our people around us who have not yet believed and think, why can't you just wake up like I did? All of a sudden, we're not special because we're chosen. We're chosen because we're special. We've done something to earn it, however small. And salvation then is not a gift, but something that you earn by being just a little bit better than others. As we said, this doctrine of election is not without its challenges. I mean, that question she asks is a great one. Why doesn't God choose everyone? And the answer to that question is we don't know. The Bible never answers that question. And theologians, as long as we've tried, I say we, I'm not even really one of those guys. They have tried to come up with a good answer. And we can't come up with one. But it's important to say that just because we can't think of a good reason does not mean that there is not one. We have to be humble enough to admit that. That we are not the sum total Our brains are not capable of understanding the sum total of what God can or cannot do and why he may or may not do it. Just because we don't know doesn't mean there's not an answer. Back in 1637, a French mathematician, Pierre de Fermat, posed an equation that would stump the world's brightest mathematicians for over 300 years. For those of you who care to know what his theorem was, here it was. There are no whole number solutions to the equation X to the nth degree plus y to the nth degree equals z to the nth degree, where n is greater than two. I don't know what any of that means. But if you do, there you go. He put this theorem out there. For 300 years, that equation was considered unsolvable. And it was. The best mathematical minds went at it and no one could solve it. And so they began to think it just is impossible. And it was until 1974 when a 10-year-old boy in Cambridge, England named Andrew Wiles came across it in his local library and he decided he would solve it. And he devoted his life to mathematics. You thought he was gonna solve it as a 10-year-old, not quite. He had to devote his life to mathematics. He had to go get a degree from Oxford and Cambridge before coming to America to work as a professor at Princeton. And what he did was he kept publishing old work while he secretly worked on Fermat's last theorem. And it took him seven years, but in 1994, he finally solved it. Seven years, working on one math problem. Some people are built differently, are they not? (laughs) That is just a different, that's a different level. Dr. Wiles did not take, we don't have the answer to mean there can be no answer. We don't know why God doesn't choose everyone. But that does not mean that there is no good reason for what he does and doesn't do. God's ways are higher than our ways. Remember the conversation that Jesus had with Peter on the beach in John 21? Peter has just had the most humiliating moments of his life. He he said he would never deny Jesus. Denied Jesus three times. Jesus rises from the dead and appears to Peter on the beach got to imagine that is a meal that Peter approaches with trembling. He goes and Jesus completely restores him. And then Jesus tells Peter that he's going to die for his faith. 
says, Peter, you're going to go where you don't want to go and you're going to die. And Peter, in classic Peter fashion, having just gone through all of that and just been restored, still cannot resist asking inappropriate questions. And he turns around and sees John there and says, what about him? What's going to happen to that guy? And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, what is that to you? You follow me. You don't worry about him. You follow me. And as we consider the doctrine of election, this idea that those who are in Christ, that God chooses those who are his, we are tempted to say, what about, everything? What about everyone else? And what if God is saying to us, what is that to you? You follow me. Do we have the humility to hear the words of our God? Now that may not sit right with you. You may think, man, what kind of God is this? Who would do this this way? Have this divine mystery? And then when we ask why, he just says, because I said so. Or at least it seems to us like that. And it's here that we need to turn our attention to the character behind God's choice. Because Moses gets into that in verses 9 and 10. He says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him to, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Moses tells us this is what kind of God this is. He is the faithful, loving, and just God. When we hear this doctrine of election, we're tempted to think that that can't be true. God must be unjust or unloving, that he's just arbitrarily denying people from coming into his family. But notice the way that Moses describes him faithful, keeping steadfast love with those who love him to a thousand generations and repaying to their face those who hate him. Did you notice the imbalance there? He repays those who hate him personally, face to face as it were, but it's just to them. To those who love him, he shows love for a thousand generations. Moses tells us there is no middle ground we either love or hate God. But the consequences of that choice are, are wildly disproportionate. It's a thousand generations to one. And it shows us where God's own priority lies. He is the God who loves to love, to show mercy. Even with these wicked nations that he is driving out, we know from earlier in the scriptures that he has given them 400 years to stop and they will not and finally he is repaying them to their face that is what we have to keep in front of us as we wrestle with this doctrine the God who chooses is a God of love and justice one of the common objections to this doctrine is well like what if somebody wants to be saved but they're not chosen and it's important to see, the Bible says there is no such person. That is not a category. 
There is no one beating on the door of God's house, begging to be let in and finding it locked. Romans 3.11 tells us that in our sin, none of us seek after God. Which means that the only way a person could want a saving relationship with God is if he is already at work in them. No one is beating on the door of God's house and finding it locked and the lights turned out and the shutters drawn. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? You will not make it one foot up the driveway before you see the God of heaven and earth running towards you. When you turn to walk towards God, you find that he has been hunting you. He loves to love. No one will be treated unfairly. No one will be capriciously denied. God is not choosing based upon the whim of a, of a moment. And so we don't have to worry. He is the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Moses then comes finally in, in verse 11 to a response. How do we respond to God's choice? Look back at verse 11 with me. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. What is required of a chosen people, a treasured possession? We're to follow him. This is a point that we've repeatedly tried to hammer home in this Deuteronomy study, so I won't belabor it this morning. But I just want to say this. Where does this doctrine of election lead us? We've already seen it cannot lead us to arrogance. There's nothing special about those that God chooses. There's nothing in them. It's all in him. So where should it lead us? It should lead us to grateful obedience to the Lord's commands. God has graciously redeemed us, not because of anything in us, but because he loves to love. How can we not follow him with everything that we have and do everything that he asks, no matter what? One of the most astonishing stories in the whole Bible, at least to me, is the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22. If you remember that story, God tests Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son, Isaac, the chosen one, the one through whom God has promised he's gonna make Abraham a father of many nations. God says, take him up on the mountain, tie him up, put him on the altar and sacrifice him to me. And of course, you remember the story, Abraham does it and God stops him at the last moment and provides a ram instead. And he tells Abraham, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. But I have always been amazed that Abraham could do that. How could he put his only son on the altar, tie him down and raise the knife? I mean, think about who this is. This is the same Abraham who refused to trust God and did things his way over and over again. Every time they ended up in Egypt or somewhere else, he would say, Sarah, his wife, was his sister. He was a coward. When it took too long for Sarah to get pregnant with this chosen child, he and Sarah came up with this strategy that he should just sleep with her maidservant, Hagar, see if they could get God's promises that way. 
But somehow, after receiving the promised child, Isaac, when God asks for him back, Abraham does not flinch. The text is almost bare in the way it just says, Abraham got up, he gathered the wood, he gathered the sun, he walked up the mountain, he laid him on the altar, and raised the knife. How is that possible? I, would, I could not do that. I would not do that. I know that. How does Abraham do it? I mean, think about Abraham in that moment when Isaac looks at him, he's walking up the mountain, he re- realizes they're about to have a sacrifice. And he asks Abraham what has to be a heartbreaking question. Father, where is the ram? And Abraham says to him, the Lord will provide my son. And in that moment, either Abraham is lying or he really believes that God is going to provide. And there we get a hint of how Abraham is going to do this because he believes that God is going to provide. And the book of Hebrews actually gives us more of the story. In Hebrews eleven nineteen, as it recounts this story, it tells us Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham had learned to trust the character of God. He believed that God would be faithful to his promises and he believed that God loved him and loved Isaac. And he believed that even if he had to sacrifice his son that God would give him back from the dead. In a manner of speaking, it's exactly what God did. Abraham knew who God was and what he had done and so he trusted and followed him completely. Of course, we know even more than Abraham did. In fact, we know that one day God would let his son go up on a mountain, that he would be stretched out in a place of sacrifice and that there would be no ram to substitute. There would be no angel to stop the knife and he would die in our place so that we could say the words back to God that he said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. God has not withheld his own son from us. How will we not follow him and do everything that he asks? As we think about this doctrine, this is the character of the God who loves us and who chooses, who, who chooses you and buys you back at the cost of his own son. To let us go out from this place and follow him with everything that we have. He has not withheld his own son from us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Amen. Let me pray for us before we sing. God, we marvel at who you are. We confess that we do not understand your sovereignty. We do not understand why you do the things that you do. Your ways are higher than our ways. Lord, who has known your mind? Who has been your counselor? Who has given a gift to you that he might be repaid? For from you and through you and to you are all things. And so we trust you. Even as we have a doctrine before us that is hard to wrap our heads around, we trust that you are the loving and just God. And we marvel that you would choose the likes of us 
I pray now, Lord, that you would send us out from this place changed because of what you have done for us, that you did not withhold your own son. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.